Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino, John Cazale, and Charles Durning. Based on The Boys in the Bank by P.F. Coolidge and Thomas Moore, screenplay by Frank Pearson, and directed by Sidney Lumet. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. Happy New Year, everybody. It's time to start the new year with a new film review cask. This one built all around heists of various different types. Uh, Matt, I know this is one we've wanted to do for a really long time, whether it's a bank heist or a casino heist. There's just something about that world of heistery. It's a new word. Yeah. It's a new word I just invented that is just intriguing. <laughs> uh, I mean, even in a creative space, you and I have always kind of played around with, it'd be cool to do a heist movie. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. So, so now's the time because, you know, what better way to start off uh, 2022 than hatching our devious plans on how we're going to abscond with lots and lots of money. Exactly, exactly. So up first, from 1975, we're going to be tackling Dog Day Afternoon. This is our first chance to talk about legendary director Sidney Lumet. And uh, Matt, before we get started, though, I do have to address something from last week's, uh, our last episode's uh, nightcap. You know, it was really Uh funny how you said... um, uh, Yeah, Dr. Strange. Oh no no no! Just uh, your your forecasting of this is usually a disaster when we do this, and I have to address two of your picks just because of recent developments of that have come to them. So number one, uh, deep deep water, the Anadarmas uh, Ben Affleck one. Yep. Uh, pulled from the release schedule, moving directly to streaming. We don't know when it's coming out. Uh, don't know why, but it's not getting a theatrical window release. Yeah, that's uh, not usually a good sign that that's a terrific film. We, you know, this may be a gift that uh, they've just chosen to give us because they're such kind and loving individuals. We get it all free <laughs> in the benefit of our own houses, or maybe they're trying to avoid the critic just circle. Get, and just, it's yeah, probably just, the latter and not the former. Get this thing off our books and just get it out. <laughs> so, yeah, we don't know yet, but I thought that was an interesting just position move. <laughs> And then, unfortunately, John Wick Chapter 4 got bumped from May to May 2023. So we got to wait a whole other year for that one. So I'm down to one choice. You're down to Doctor uh, Doctor Strange. You got all your eggs in the Doctor Strange basket, but that's a good basket to have your eggs in, I guess. I guess so. It it never fails, right? It never fails. And I was just like, oh, we have to address this because it was like the second you said that, it was like the next week was boom, boom, back to back. I heard those two things. I was like, come on, man. Yep. Excellent. Well, let's not beat around the bush. Um, what, uh, what are you drinking over there on your end? I got some, uh, oh, Weller special reserve. This is that green label. Um, I, yep. I, I managed to buy one of the liter bottles. So ladies and gentlemen, if you ever needed a liter of whiskey, which you probably don't ever need, uh, <laughs> you can get a, a pretty nice, uh, bottle of Weller special reserve whiskey. This is one of our all timers that we really like. Yeah, we love Wellers. Yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm actually not drinking today. Uh, <laughs> uh, a little water with some electrolyte mix in here. Just kind of finished the workout and stuff. So I'm just trying to hydrate. So Excellent. Let's detox. Boring, let's, boring, boring. Yeah, let's detox into 2022. But let's yeah. go ahead and get started with uh, our review breakdown of Dog Day Afternoon. 
All right, get away from those alarms. Come on, get in the center. He moves. Take his head off. Put the gun on him. Get out of the center. Sonny? I can't do it, Sonny. What? I, I'm not going to make it, Sonny. What are you talking about? Put it on him. I can't do it, Sonny. Oh, fuck me. Sal. Sal. What? Where are you? He can't make it. Fuck him. Let him go. Come on, Sonny. All right, let him out. Let him out. Do what the gentleman says, Howard. Wait, let him out. Let him out. I'm sorry, Sonny. Oh, shit. Stevie, don't take the car. Well, how do I get home? Take the subway. We need the car. Stevie, the keys. Excellent. Right from the get-go, this heist goes tits up, like, instantly. Like, it just is ruined from the word go. And, I, you know, I noticed, you know, even after our nice kind of opening uh, New York City montage set to... Uh, an Elton John song, which, uh, oh gosh, the name of it's escaping me now. Uh, really good tune, by the way. You just kind of see that, like, the wheels of this heist operation are not completely well-oiled. Yeah. Well, aside from getting out of the car, I think it's fair to say nothing else goes right for them in this heist. Yeah. Um, and to... You know, whether it's 50% accurate, 75% accurate, 30% accurate, based on a true story base, there's that tricky word. I think, um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to start with that, too. I mean, for, you know, that moniker being used uh, for what I could kind of uh, research and, and dig up about this, other than, like, varying totals on, like, what how much money they were after, a lot of this plays out how it kind of plays out in the film, and the real story was John uh, Wojewicz and Salvatore Natrali and Robert Westenberg, you know, attempted to rob this bank in Brooklyn for about um, $150,000 to $200,000, and kind of what was left was $30,000 for them to take. But the way it plays out, uh, you know, how it was, you know, for, uh, you know, Sonny in the film and John in real life was for this uh, sex change operation. Like all that was like, like for real. So we often don't really get that. You know what I mean? The based on a true story is usually this piece from that story, this piece from that story. And now the screenwriter is going to put their touch on it. But for the most part, the blueprint was really there for dog day afternoon. Sure. Yeah. And anything that can possibly go wrong in this mostly does. So when, you know, the, the third guy or the guy that's talking about leaving there, what the hell's his name? Um, the first guy that, that runs away from the bank heist, that guy. Yeah. Decides that he doesn't want any part of this right at the very beginning. Two things are established. One, shockingly to me, and it's been a long time since I've seen this, so this was sort of new. Mm-hmm how amicable most of the people in the bank are with Sal and Sonny. Oh yeah. And secondarily, the heavy burden that Sonny takes on in trying to pull this thing off. And we're going to come to find out that he's in no place where he's ready to to, to carry that load. Mm -mm. 
So, and, and those two themes, other than just sort of disaster after disaster after disaster, kind of pervade the entire story. Not kind of, they do pervade the entire story. And there's an interesting sort of character that unfolds, I think, with Sonny through that. No, yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. And yeah, I think it's been a while since I, I had uh, seen this one as well. And I, I guess I did forget, you know, how amicable the bank patrons and the bank staff and, you know, whoever's still stuck there at the bank, uh, mm-hmm. how well they treat them. You know, they almost see through how phony they are, how phony their yeah. attempts are to rob this bank. Uh, like it's almost like they don't even have, know how to use the guns that they brought with them. Um, yeah. you know, they're, they're scrambling around one little detail and kind of curious as to how short Al Pacino really is. But when he's trying to spray the, uh, spray paint, uh, the security cameras, he's like having to like kind of jump up and down to get, to do it. Like he has to get a stool to, to spray one of them. Like they're so inept at trying to not get caught. It's like, well, they're just leaving evidence everywhere. Yeah. What do they really think they're going to get away with? And then when we find out that, you know, the bank just got cleared out like mere hours pre-robbery and mm-hmm. what's left here is traveler's checks and like $1,100. It's like, well, shit, like we've made all this fuss over n- scraps compared to what we're after. You know, what's odd about that to me too mm-hmm. is the way that that inability to be there at a time proper to make the haul worth the risk is completely opposite of how Sonny most of the time in this film is able to sniff out the con or the police attempt to try to pull one over on him. Mm-hmm. And to add to that, he worked in the bank. So you would think if he worked in the bank, he would understand about drop times and pickup times. Yeah. And they completely botched that. However, Sonny's pretty akin to Holmes as in Sherlock when it comes to figuring out exactly what moves the cops or the FBI's are making against him and his crew. Mm -hmm. And mostly, I say mostly gets the better of them kind of till the end. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you miss the most important part, which would be having the money in the bank when you choose to rob it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this, yeah, this plan is just doomed before the film even starts. (laughs) Are they going on instinct or is this actually like how much time let's put that, let's put us in the war room with these three guys. Okay. Are we talking about days upon days upon days of planning or is this like, what are we doing at three o'clock this afternoon? I have an idea. Let's go rob a bank. It, Which do you it, think that yeah, is? It seems like it was like almost like he got the, cause he says er, uh, earlier and this, this was part from like the real life inspiration that he got the tip. He's like, that son of a bitch. He gave me the wrong tip or, or, or whatever. He had gotten the tip from a, a bank employee that uh, he met at a gay nightclub. So it almost <laughs> seems like he got it that night. And then the next day he was like, okay, now we got the, we got a plan to go d- do this. We have some guns and this is what we're going to do without yeah. ever scouting the bank, kind of observing when the drop times are, they're just showing up here because they got this tip. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, and it's just a complete mess. And I guess part of that's part of the charm of this kind of opening uh, uh, first act of the film is to see Pacino like act his way through being uh, like scrambling, like to make up like what he's doing. And then the crucial huge mistake that he, he truly makes is when he burns the, burns the books, the register and creates kind of like a smoke, smoke screen that, everyone starts seeing outside. So the next time they, 
they look across the street, boom, the police are already there. Uh, yeah. So it's we were going to lock these people in the vault. We were going to steal the money and then get out of here. But now what are we what are we really going to do? Yeah. Did I do anything yeah. to hurt you? Did I treat you badly? Look, on my, my salary, I'm not going to be a hero. Did you have a plan or what? What did you do, just barge in on a whim? Huh? Why'd you have to light a fire? Look, I told you to get out of here when you could, but no, you just had to hang around. He don't have a plan. It's all a whim. Rob a bank. I right? had a plan. I had it planned. Only the money was supposed to be delivered, not taken away. That fucking Jack downtown, he gave me the wrong information, that fuck. What did... What is this Jack supposed to be? A mastermind or what? We're all in the barrel together and we want to get out of here. Oh. All right, I gotta have time to think now. I gotta think. And it's just chaos at this point. It's just, it's cops, it's a scene outside, it's chaos inside the bank. Uh, and, you know, that it's probably very apt that this story that. You know, this true story that gets published in Life magazine as like a periodical finds its way to Warner Brothers is like, we got to make this into a movie. Can you see the drama on the page here? Uh, and then it finds its way to Sidney Lumet, who, you know, talk about, you know, we talked about when we uh, talked about Orson Welles, when, uh, unfortunately, Matt, when we did Mank. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> What a day! Yeah, what a what a debut uh, arrival that uh, film is for Mr. Orson Welles, not Mank, Citizen Kane. Uh, right, Mr. Sidney Lumet arguably has an even better film in his uh, debut, and that's Twelve Angry Men. Yep, talking about a singular location where it's your word against my word. Who do you trust? It's, it's like the thing in a in a jury box is what it is. <laughs> Right, yeah. um, and then that's what this film boils down to. So I'm kind of curious about like, kind of what do you think uh, other than, you know, a quick shot of like Sonny's home life and then the airport tarmac, we're in a singular location. So this is impossible to do in screenwriting and storytelling, but they're able to pull it off really well. How does, how does that work for you? Um. Okay. So this is, you know, Hollywood gold, if you can get it, they all want this. We've talked about that a lot. It mostly works okay for me. I do have to say, and there are a couple of specific examples that came to mind with this. Mm-hmm. The first one was The Revenant. Now, I know that's not a singular location at all. It couldn't be more different setting-wise. But every scene in The Revenant is really long in and really long out. Mm-hmm. I think that this film has to be carried with what happens in between the character interactions in so far as what's happening is making the location worthy of staying there for nearly two hours. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I can make the case and this is not, this is not an indictment on the film. This doesn't kill my breaking of the film. I don't know if what happens in the quiet space as we're watching Sonny contemplate what the next move is, Mm -hmm. is enough to give it the 10 to 15 minutes that, that it takes up. Now, otherwise Mm -hmm. the bank and the characters in the bank are all interesting enough to where it almost doesn't feel like singular location. And that's the other takeaway that I had thinking about singular locations. Okay. You can have a place, right? Which is just one spot. You don't need the stuff in the spot, set pieces, um, grand this, 
high, pro, you know, expensive production development. What you need to decorate that space with is the interesting characters that when done well, make it doesn't seem like that it's in the same place for two hours. Mm-hmm. Sal and Sonny are Jesse. Yeah. I don't know if the rest of the players, Charles Dunning is a difference, but that's almost not in that place because he's outside. I don't know if the rest are. Yeah. So that's a really long answer. How does it work? It works. It works fine. And this is very early in the singular location kind of game. So to that, yay. Yeah. But most of the women bank tellers kind of toil around with, I mean, Carol Kane's one of them too, is an established actress. Yeah. Yeah. The use of it, use of inappropriate language and the desire for media sensationalism and fame. And it starts, I don't kind of wears a little thin on me. What do you think about how the finger location piece works? I think it maybe works a little bit better for me because, you know, as the film starts to, to wane on, you know, like I, I feel the walls of the bank getting smaller and smaller. I mean, they do make a few attempts throughout the film to, you know, get in and, you know, they, 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 they stop it. And it just feels like, you know, whenever we do singular location, my brain is always in uh, overdrive of, gosh, I want to see what, what does the world look like outside of these walls? And we do get a little bit more compared to most, you know, films other than like devil. That's just an elevator or, yeah. you know, 12 angry men, which it, is a, a jury, uh, uh, you know, deliberation room uh, here, you know, we get to at least see outside. So that vein of claustrophobia isn't as heavy, yeah. but um, you really you see the effects of, cause the title, you know, dog day afternoon, this is a hot New York summer day. And, you mm-hmm. know, you see, start to see that wane on the characters as, you know, they're, you know, they're more, they're, 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 they're questioning their own, you know, actions of, of what they're doing. And, as things get more sensationalized and, you know, the media gets involved, you know, they feel safe inside their, their little box. And it's almost when, well, what's going to happen when they decide to eventually come out. And when they do mm-hmm. come out, I thought that was fairly fascinating. The, the, the way that they're so um, careful with every move they make of getting into the car and who's taking them. And that part's really well thought out compared to the bank heist. You know what I mean? The escape yeah. part is the most well thought out part of uh, this whole heist situation. So I think it works pretty mm-hmm. well, pretty well for me. I mean, the 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 heat, the 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 sweatiness. You know, they turn the AC and the power off on them at, at one point. I think it works yeah. pretty well for me, and I think it's due in part to it's not as claustrophobic as most single location films. <laughs> Instead of like a bank, this is almost like a city block film. So. Interesting that you brought up the heat and the sweatiness of the day because that plays into 12 Angry Men as well. Absolutely. We're watching that jury box and those guys and the temperatures flare and get hotter and hotter. We're seeing literally the temperatures rise in the room as well. It's rainy and ugly. It's an interesting piece that the director, Sidney Lumet, likes to add to that. It's really inexpensive. There's just water on their costumes, basically, right? Wet their clothes. Yeah, can I tell you? And it a, a, create a, yeah, it creates I, a really uncomfortable feeling or look for the for us as audience members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're both familiar with sweating through our clothes and and hot <laughs> and, and hot days. <laughs> um, but here's a fun little just trivia nugget of because uh, 
they filmed this in kind of the fall winter-ish of New York. So it was like 40 degrees when they were filming a lot of this, but it's supposed to be the, you know, dog days of summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sydney Lumet just use a, just a simple concoction of glycerin and water to like really make that sweat, like the beads, like really pronounced. Or- yeah, And it was the same uh, concoction he used in 12 Angry Men to make those jurors sweating under the collar while they're, you know, the film's progressing. So I thought that was interesting. It's so simple, you know what I mean? Uh, just yeah. a, a simple trick. Now we would have a computer do that for us probably. Right, right. But, you know, to Sidney Sid- Lumet's credit of this is part of the characters, this is part of the setting is how uncomfortable they look. This isn't a glamorized version of a bank heist where everyone's to the nines and their suits i mean everyone looks like hell i mean if pacino like wasn't on drugs behind the scenes like he looks like he's like going through withdrawals by the end of this film oh yeah yeah but uh what the once the i didn't know that glycerin huh that's really interesting glycerin and water yeah so uh, just so so simple when you just make it i guess it made just like kind of solid beads almost kind of like maybe like jello gelatin like yeah, but it works. Gotta get, it gives it the volume that really shows on the camera too, doesn't it? There it you go. The, vo- the volume piece. Yeah, exactly. It has weight. But once uh, the authority <laughs> figures, you know, show up here, I'm always welcomed by Charles uh, Dunning's presence. Kind of almost yeah. playing the same character he plays in every movie I've ever seen him in, which is this cantankerous, you know, police officer. Whether it's the post office uh, worker in uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, or he, I, th- I think he plays another cop, or uh, he might play another post office worker in When a Stranger Calls. Speaking of Carol Kane, he mm-hmm. just plays this guy who's just like you lo- lo- love to hate him. Like he's just the guy standing in front of your goals, and he's just going to make your life about as hellish as it could possibly be. Um, yeah. Uh, but we get to this moment here in the film, and this is kind of where things start to take a turn a little bit, but this is probably the, the most famous part of the movie that people do remember. Kiss me, man. What? Kiss me. When I'm being fucked, I like to get kissed hey, a come lot. Come on, come on, come on. You're a city cop, right? Robbing the bank's a federal offense. They got me on kidnapping, armed robbery. They're going to bury me, man. I don't want to talk to somebody who's trying to calm me. Get somebody in charge here. I am in charge I don't want here. to talk to some flunky pig trying to calm me. Man. You don't have to be calling What's he pigs? doing? Will you get back what over there? What are you there? moving in there for? Will you What's get the doing? fuck back there? Huh? Get back What's there. What's he doing? Look at him. Get, get over there. Go back there, man. Get over there. Will you? He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. Oh, God, I was going to kill you. Attica! Attica! Will you? Attica! So for those not born in the early 70s that don't know what this is, you're just like, why is he shouting this? And why are people, you know, responding the way that they're doing? So I myself even had to kind of just do a little dive into what this was, the Attica prison riots in Attica, New York, which was at 71, 1970, 71, which had just happened. So this is very fresh in, in 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 the conscience. But, you know, this was, excuse me. You know, it was it was a, a prison riot. You know, the prisoners wanted you know some some better rights. Uh, um, you know, you know, you know more uh, better better living conditions. Uh, you know, it stemmed from just kind of things like basic hygiene. I mean, like, can we take showers that with soap? Can 
Are there education opportunities? I kind of thought of Andy Dufresne when he opens up that library in Shawshank. <laughs> yeah. Um, religious freedom, you know, being able to, you know, you know, you know, worship God or worship whoever, you know, some, some church things, grievance procedures, you know, for, you know, mistreatment, you know, if they're beating the hell out of you day in, day out. Uh, mm-hmm. And then overcrowding, which is, you know, a consistently just an issue to this day of there's no place for all these incarcerated people. So, it was a very, it's the bloodiest, I think, prison riot in American history. Uh, so, you know, the response to that, when, you know, he starts shouting that, he gets this cr- crowd response, which then it kind of, you know, turns the tides for Sonny a little bit. Uh, it almost turns him into, like, into the into the hero versus the antagonist, you know what I mean? And yeah. he, he goes from being the antagonistical hero that we're following, and we we don't know why he's robbing the bank yet. Uh, but then it turns the populace into like, well, look at this guy. Like the the police are, you know, like giving this guy a hard time. Like he's he's not doing anything wrong. He hasn't hurt anybody. Uh, right. And then that's when that that whole media sensation comes in. So, what do you think that kind of does for for his character? I mean, it kind of gets us on his side a little bit. It does, and he's got a group that in 1970, 71 New York probably is not pro cop mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. And when you see it play out the way that it does, initially it kind of fires him up and helps to keep his, his engine running. Yeah. And he and all of the people in the bank start to feed on that. You can see it. They feed on it. It's interesting though, that the Attica prison riots are the, I guess, jumping off point for this pep rally, if you will, Mm -hmm. that the crowd around the police, again, they have guns, so that might temper some of this a little bit, but the crowd around the police don't really ever get quite full riot, uh, mob, destroy, you know, burn everything down. Yeah, no, no, no. No tear gas or anything like that. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I guess we're trying to develop a hero. Mm-hmm. And the thing that they've done with Sonny so far, I think, in the film, is allow us to like him. Because he, I mean, even from the beginning, when the third leg in the tripod that only becomes the the chair with two legs, right, when the yeah. guy runs away. Yeah. Um, he's kind of forgiving to that guy as well. Yeah, and any normal... He didn't and- shoot this guy. And I'll give you an example. Like, think about Heath Ledger's Joker character. Yeah. Yeah, in any other heist film, like, yeah, you're curtains, right. right. Yeah, it would be curtains. That, that, that would be a guy not to be trifled with. I'm thinking of, like, Inside Man, you know, my friend Clive Owen, uh, you know, films that like that where if you cross these people, then like, they're just going to take you out. Here, like, yeah. I don't even think violence is ever a question for, for Sonny. I mean, he just wants to get in and get this money and then get out. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he really wants to use these weapons. Now, John Cazali, Sal, on the other hand, I kind of don't know what's going on with him. Like, at, at any moment, mm-hmm. I feel like that guy could snap and just take everybody yep. out. <laughs> like, he's the one sweating, I feel like, the most under his... I don't know if that was John Cazali's real hair or if that was a wig, but his his uh, Anton Sugar-esque hairdo uh, is... Uh, uh, very telling of just how much I distrust Sal's part in all of this. And you always kind of quietness, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
or he, he he wants to and 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 an uneducated Irina's to him. I mean, he wants to go to another country. He wants to go to Wyoming. Doesn't know that's still in the United States. We can't go to Wyoming, Sal. <laughs> but you know, yeah, that line, Larry, we know line is really troubling for me that he gives is when he asked Sonny, "Were you serious about we're going to roll heads out the front door?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "I'm ready to do that." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I think at any point in this heist, whether it's because, you know, Sonny starts going outside a lot and, you know, the police could choose at any moment to, with a sniper, take him out or a bystander could come. I mean, the pizza guy comes and like, he's like in love with him. And this other guy comes and attacks him and he's the husband of someone in the bank. Uh, mm-hmm. at, if that happens, I feel like Sal's just going to go ballistic in here and just sure. k- kill everybody and then probably kill himself. So, there's just something untrusting about him, and God bless John Cazale. It's partly his performance; like he brings that Fredo Corleone esque to this character of you just never know where he stands. Like he's just so snaky, so smarmy. Well, the hair—he looks like a slime ball. Yeah. Like I wouldn't buy a like used car sheet, used car salesman sheet, and that who's got you at the end of a gun. Yeah. Over used car salesman you know, chic. Yeah, that's exactly what that is. <laughs> in his weird leisure suit, right? Mm-hmm. In a bank heist that's already gone south. I mean, Jesus Christ, take your chances and pray. We talk about John Cazale and we'll talk about Pacino here. Like, here's two actors that I don't know if two actors in Hollywood in a given decade have had a better run than these two guys. I mean, Fair. to yeah. be in. Two of the best, you know, mob movies and films of all time. But then you're mm-hmm. in Dog Day as well. You know, Pacino yep. is in Serpico, uh, The Panic in Needle Park, uh, Injustice for All, Scarecrows with Gene Hackman. Uh, just remarkable films, like, in one decade. And then, you know, Kazali's also in The Deer Hunter, which is his swan song. Yeah, You're not going to find that with, like, any other actor in any decade, I I think maybe you can get someone that I'm you know I'm forgetting, but good luck because those are a hell of resumes for ten years. The thing about that too is I don't know if the scripts are available to have that many hits in a row. Exactly. Yeah. This sort of rot drama that you're talking about and from you know, Needle Park, even The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Those are character study drama pieces. And in order for that to work, or for you to do it, you have to have interesting characters, duh. Yeah. Now, Cazale and Pacino both either found good roles or made the roles great based on what they could do from what was on the page. But <clears throat> if you look at the slate of films that we get in a given year, I mean, there might be two to three swings total yeah. per studio. And I mean, maybe, and that's including, you know, the off branched avant-garde nocturnal animals kind of piece of mm-hmm. Sony classic picture backlot, you know, yeah. <laughs> way, yeah. way deep in the re- And if you have a chance to make the next Marvel film and all of that money and everything that goes into it, or walk it back into deep water, <laughs> just for an example. <laughs> or for another example, The Way Back, which yeah. was a really nice basketball film that Ben Affleck made last year. Yeah, I think most people are probably going to choose to do the, the big budget thing. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, right? So 
that, that's what, again, so is it talent or is it availability? I actually think it's both. It's, it has to be both because th- this is a film released by Warner Brothers Studio. You know what I mean? Like this is yeah. a major studio. The Godfather was released by Paramount. Uh, it's just that that it, this is that t- time in film that we really, really like where we're exploring more intense themes with our films. They are a little bit more character driven. They're a little more gritty. Uh, they're not yep. so uh, cut and dry, happy ending, everything tied up with a neat bow. I mean, this is the same year as Jaws, and that's going to kind of change the trajectory of how we're making films going forward. But true, yeah. True. And then the the type of acting method is changing too. I mean, Pacino, uh, De Niro, Marlon Brando—they're all coming from that you know Stravinsky, Lee Strasberg school of acting, which is method acting, where they're like mm-hmm. really getting into these characters. Where like I believe. Pacino was living like Sonny for four months straight. You know what I mean? Like ragged, stressed, like smoking cigarettes and probably doing blow. Like he's living this character, but you see it on the screen. Like, and that's just the difference of like how we make movies today compared to back then. Um, And what people were willing to go see like as like big budget fare. I mean, when we'll get to the totals, this movie made a decent chunk of change for, it was made for peanuts. (laughs) The studio system has to fund so many things in order just to keep itself upright that it really only allows for one, two, maybe three, depending on location, mm-hmm. big tent pole swings each year. Um, you know, I think the Warner Brothers model that was the streaming piece last year was a really good example of having some big tentpole properties and watering them down so much, whether that was talent or writing or too many executives in the editing room or whatever it might have been Mm -hmm. that none of them really delivered. And if anyone is sort of raising their brother, like, what is he talking about? Just go listen to any of the podcasts from the latter half of 2021. (laughs) And it's pretty much, you know, the litmus test on how not to make studio films via the streaming model. Right. Yeah. Like think about like, let's go back to Godzilla for a minute. Godzilla, you up, Godzilla you up Kong? Jaws. Yeah, you brought up Jaws. Okay. Jaws changed filmmaking. That introduced the summer blockbuster. Okay, so take that from 1971 and jump ahead 40 years. Certainly, we've improved upon the product. Yeah. And you take not only one Jaws, Godzilla, mm-hmm. but two Jaws, add Kong to it, yeah. that were actually more established than Jaws was at the beginning. Yeah. There is not a person that knows anything about film that doesn't know who Godzilla and Kong are. Exactly. No one knew who the hell Jaws was because wasn't it called Leviathan Rising or some crazy thing to start with at the beginning? So talk about like a shot in the dark. And somehow you screw that up. Yeah. Well, the difference is is we care about the characters in Jaws while the shark is attacking. You're like, we could have given two licks about any human component in Godzilla Kong I mean, it went from spectacle to spectacle with human drama, which... Well, damn it, you just stole my, you just stole my punchline. <laughs> exactly. So because we're in that era that we like and character still matters, yeah. Captain Quint and Hooper and all of the players in Jaws are as interesting and they match the shark. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm telling... Tell- exactly what you said. Go to Godzilla Kong yeah. and we're in the fucking middle of earth yeah, somewhere in earth's core yeah, hollow earth. where gravity is not gravity and 
were fighting over scepters and I, I don't even remember, but it was just, all of that was gone and it just turned into a big, big Christmas gift with a lot of wrapping paper on it. That's really pretty and, it's and just, a big bow and, it's and just, you can't wait to open it under your Christmas tree. <laughs> and it's a pair of socks. It's just an empty that box. Don't even fit you. This is an empty box. <laughs> right. You know, the, the joke where you get like the big tube, box with like the Hershey socks. kiss in there or whatever. Oh, yeah, that, like that's it's, it's that's that. the worst Christmas gift is like, <laughs> Here's this box right. of a hundred chocolates. A, thanks for diabetes. B, I'm not going <laughs> to eat, share that with my family. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, but the best example of that, and we'll, we'll get back on track here, but this is a good discussion, is in Jaws, when they're having the Indianapolis discussion, Yeah, you forget about the shark. You forget about the shark yeah. swimming around the boat as we speak because you're so engrossed with the story being told. I mean, that's that's powerful. I mean, that's good character uh, stuff. I mean, you know, Spielberg's, you know, coming around the same time as all these films are coming out. And I think they get what, why people like to go see movies and get engrossed with them is there's got to be something at the heart of that. And I think that's fair with Dog Day Afternoon as well as once we get to the, you know, center with what Sonny's doing with why he's doing it. You're like, go get my wife, get my wife down here. Yep. And then we see who shows up. Leon, played by a very young Chris Sarandon. We're like, we're like, what's this all about? Like, what's really going on here? And then you kind of mm-hmm. see the tides change. The mob that was pro-Attica or pro-Sunny starts to sway a little bit. They start to, I don't know, maybe be a little homophobic towards uh, Sunny. Do you, you kind of get that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he becomes not homophobic, at least the freak, the freak in the room. Exactly, yeah. And think about that. How weird is that? This guy's got you at gunpoint clearly unhinged Mm -hmm. and you're letting him teach you how to do like military styled gun juggling. I don't even know what you would call that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we're taking potty breaks and sort of just chumming around with each other. Chumming. Yeah. And that's at the end of a gun. Yep. (laughs) But the minute you find out that he has what a 1971 for the people in the bank might be an alternative lifestyle, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Now he's this social pariah and you want nothing to do with him. I think even though the director Sidney Lumet did not know what he was speaking about in 1971 and that, unless he's, unless he's homosexual himself and I don't know it. Yeah. He's really hitting on an important theme there, but I think is very contemporary in the way it was viewed, but also a rather damning statement. I think on some societal beliefs at the time as well. Like, look, we're going to worship the media and this guy's all about to make us famous because we're Mm -hmm. in, you know, hostages. Oh, but wait, he's gay. Ooh. Well, even, well, even Sal, I mean, Sal, I'm going to play a clip of Sal because I think this is an interesting kind of conundrum that we're in with his character. What? You don't smoke? No. How come? I don't want the cancer. Oh, my God. Give me the cigarette. Go ahead, do what you want. I just think you ought to take care of your body, that's all. My body? What for? Your body is the temple of the Lord. You're serious? So you rob a bank, but you keep your body pure. Is that it? 
You're going to smoke the cigarette or what? What's going on here? I mean, the hypocritical nature that arises with religion at times of, I'm not going to partake in this act, premarital sex. I'm not going to do this. I'm not, thou shall not do this. Thou shall not do that. But I am okay with robbing a bank. You know what I mean? <laughs> and yeah. I think she calls him out on it. Or like, you won't smoke this cigarette because you don't, you want to purify your body for the Lord, but you're going to hold people up at gunpoint. They're like, who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. And then he becomes then also hypocritical of like, Hey, Sonny, on the news, they're saying that there's two homosexuals here in the bank. Like, you need to tell the cops that there's only one. And, like, he's really bothered by that. Right. To the point where he wants to go out and tell the media, like, no, no, I'm the only gay one. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Again, the the wild card-ness of Sal's, John Cazale's Sal is just completely fascinating to me of how they're uh, choosing to portray him. Uh, amidst this frenzy, yeah, we got the media circus, we got this the police presence outside, the celebrity aspect of, like, the, the, the one-minute celebrity of, we'll be famous for this day, everyone's going to remember this 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 uh, news story. Yep. But then, yeah, when it starts to change, not, you know, to their best interest, like, ah, eh, well, maybe we don't want to be so associated with this. And, yeah, when Chris Sarandon, yep. they, they, they bring him out here, and he's, like, in a robe, they brought him from Bellevue Hospital, oh, my <sighs> God. And yeah. uh, he looks ragged. He looks like he's been on some sort of bender or a uh, withdrawal uh, drug induced state. And, uh-huh. you know, he comes in, he's just, you know, so skittish and witty. I mean, like this is Jerry Dandridge from Fright Night or Prince Humperdinck. And like, this is, this is another kind of really interesting performance in this movie to see him here playing this character who wants a sex change. Right. And again, for, for 75, I mean, there's not a lot of films that are really kind of going into this territory, is there, Matt? I mean, like, <laughs> not, there's not ones that are like, oh, yeah, he's gay, and then he also, this other character, he wants to be a woman, too. Yeah, no, I, not that I can think of at the top of my head. Um, it also brings up another interesting point, and that's how in some supporting roles, some of the cast members kind of portrayed what their career was going to be as well. Yeah. So Jerry Dandridge is a vampire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously not a middle patient looking for a sex change, but that is going to be, that is Sarandon to the letter his entire career, isn't it? Yeah. And then, like you said earlier with Charles Dunning, that's Charles Dunning. Yeah. The exception might be the little role he has in Tootsie, but kind of not there too either. Um, <clears throat> I almost wish that the Sarandon character was Sal. Yeah. Because I think there would be a little bit more, and not that Sal's a bad character, he's fine. I think there would be, it's, and it's a nice reveal why they're trying to rob this bank too, like, oh my gosh, for that. Mm-hmm. But I think that there would be an interesting lover's quarrel piece that... Or if Sal was just like a part of that, you know what I mean? Like the third part yeah. of this love triangle, this like, like he discovers that this is what they're robbing the bank for. And he's like, well, what about us, Sonny? You know what I mean? Like that could have like really fleshed out like his conflict with religion and everything that he's all about. Well, cause he elevates, he would certainly elevate the temperature in the room for all the players, especially Sonny and Sal. Mm-hmm. Especially when you get into the piece where he starts explaining 
you know, Sal is, or Sonny's crazy. He held a gun to my head. He tells me he's dying, all of these things. Um, that's certainly not a happy couple at all. Yeah. And to have that be one of the partners that's helping you pull off this bank heist and then to find out you're such you're stealing nickels. <laughs> and again, not that this movie needs attention elevated any more than it already is. It's just, just, just stop. So, yeah. So what's, uh, I'll, I'm going to play another little sound clip here. This is of their phone conversation. Then I have a couple things to just uh, ask about that. You know the pressures I've been having, right? I mean, I got all these pressures, and you know about it. You're in that hospital there with all them tubes coming out, and you want that fucking operation, right? You're giving me that shit. Everybody's giving me shit. Everybody needs money. You know what I mean? So you needed money. I got your money. That's it. Yeah. Well, I didn't ask you to go and rob a bank. No, I know you didn't ask me. I know you didn't ask me. Look. I want to, you know, I'm not putting this on anybody, you know, nothing on nobody. I did this on my own, you see, all on my own I did it. But I just want you to know something. I want you to know that I'm going to, I'm getting out of here. I'm, t- I'm getting a plane out of here. And I just wanted you to know it, that's all. And I wanted you to come down. And uh, I wanted to just say goodbye to you here. Or if you wanted to, you can come with me. I mean, you're free to do what you want. That's what I, that's just what I wanted to say to you, that's all. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm free to do what I want, huh? Right. Yeah, well, uh, I've been, I've been trying to get away from you for six months, and I'm going to go with you on a plane trip, huh? Right. Well, where? Where, where, where are you going? I don't know where yet. Uh, well, we, would, we said Algeria, I don't know. We, um, so, I'll go to Algeria, I don't know that. Why are you going to Algeria? I don't know why. I, they got to have a Johnson's there, so I'm going. You know what I mean? You're whooped, you know that? You're really whooped. I'm whooped. I know I'm whooped. I'm, God, Algeria, it's, uh, I'm, I, they, it's, uh, you know, they walk around, they, they got masks on, they got the things on their heads. There were a bunch of crazy people there. So what am I supposed to do? Well, I don't know. You, you could have picked a better place. Matt, this... I, I clocked this phone conversation between the two of them hour and 24 minutes to an hour and 30. So about six minutes. Wow. Completely improvised. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lumet like had the stage of like, this is where we need to get, but like, I'm just going to let you two guys kind of go at it. I couldn't believe it. I was like the, some of the stuff wow. that they go into and even like the, the little mumbling quirks of Saran, you can kind of see it there, but it feels so natural. It feels like, here are it's a love, lover's quarrel on the phone here is like almost like they're breaking yep. up like he's like hey i did this yep. for you i robbed this bank for you and now you're telling me you don't want it anymore you don't want to be with me you're mad that i abused you all these things uh it's almost like a breakup scene it's and i couldn't i couldn't believe it. i was like i was like but to those actors credit i once i heard it i was like yeah i could believe that they did that I had yeah, I can't see now, but that that's really impressive for both of those guys to pull that off mm-hmm. off the cuff. Just having a lovers' quarrel over—that's really that's really really good. Yeah. So, what I wanted to ask was, you know, here we have Sonny, and you know, he's in a flux here. He's you know with Leon, all this confusion there, and then he's with Sal, and then you know, Sal's this wild card, but like. Is all of this just a response? Just, you know, we don't know because we didn't know the real people, but just what the film kind of gives you, and especially in the preceding scene, or the uh, preceding scene, is it like in relation to his home life? Is he like that unhappy with his current wife and all these kids that he has? 
because they go at it on the phone too, which is another one of my favorite scenes. Well, he has to be. And I think that's an important moment. Yeah. As much as those two guys have a lover's quarrel, you can tell, I think that there's a genuine care between the two of them. Yeah. The next phone call he makes is to his wife and he basically hangs up on it. And because he just can't, he can't handle the nagging. I mean, it's like, no, I felt that's right. (laughs) I felt myself the same way. Like God, hang up that phone already. Yeah. I just, I almost was no wonder when it was done. He's like, I know she, I I know I got fat. I know I got fat. He's like, just stop saying you're fat. Are you like, I don't like when you say that you're fat. Cause you're not, I love how like, New York she is, you know what I mean? Like how from like the the Brooklyn, like her accent is, is just, it's so good. But yeah, you're right. They, it's just they like. They do a terrific job in that scene of in two or three minutes, it's not as long as the conversation with, with uh, Leon. Mm-hmm. Making her sound completely self-absorbed and selfish. Yeah. Your husband is at the bank with hostages and cops are there it's probably not going to go well. And any moron can deduce that Mm -hmm. it's not quite a dying wish, but it might be close. And his, can you just come down here and she can't find a sitter and it's too late or like just can't be bothered. Exactly. What? Now is this, do you think this is her first time finding out about his alternative life? Yeah, probably. Yeah. It's not like they had conversation about it on the, on the side there, but yeah, you're right. It's like she's so annoyed, and he can't even, like, get a word in. I mean, she's just like, I'm sorry about this. I'm sorry. We could do this. We could do that. And he's just like, would you shut up and just come down here? Like, I can't. Like, I can't come down here. And he, he finally, uh-huh. when he hangs up on her, you're just like, good riddance. But you kind of yeah. see, like, I mean, he's, like, he's really just backed into a corner here. Like, he, the woman that I still think he does love, his wife. And then this, you know, Leon, his lover, who I think he also cares deeply about is mm-hmm. they like want nothing to do with him. Like it, he can't even like make peace or break bread with them properly. And then the third one, the third triumvirate of this whole thing is when mom comes down to the scene next. Yeah. Mom, what are you doing down here? Like, what do you get out? You need to get out of here. He's like, Sonny, it's okay. You come back home. Like, everything's going to be okay. Like, was dad, was dad here? Like, you know, like, you're dead to your dad. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Exactly. So, like, his whole nuclear family, you know, connection is literally crumbling around him. At the end of the day, all he has is Sal. Right. Um, I do want to ask you a question about that, though. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being completely legitimate and honest, some shared uh, compassion for each other. Where would you rate his relationship with Marconi or what, um, the Charles Dunning character Moretti? Like what number do you give that as far as honest, genuine caring for each other? I thought it was like at a six or a seven, but then when they try to storm the, the bank, and I have a, an audio clip of, of that too. I'll play that. It goes down to like a zero. Yeah. What the fuck is the matter with you? What? What are you firing a shot in there for? What are you doing? We got 250 cops here. What the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? What the hell is the matter with you? Huh? What's the matter with you? They were trying to get in there, right? Who? Come on, don't give me that shit. You know who. What the fuck is going on here? You're full of shit. Go around and find out what's going on back there. Honest yeah. to God, I don't even know what the Bullshit. fuck is going on here. 
Now I'll communicate Bullshit! because I'm set up yet. I just you had somebody, somebody back there. Talk to God me. I want to think prior to that, he was starting to trust him a little bit with, you yeah. know, their demands. I mean, they bring him pizza and soda for God's sakes. Uh, I was, th- I was starting to think, I was like, yeah, I think he's trusting him with, you know, this information and what their plan is. And yeah, I'm going to abide by my word and give you a hostage if you give us this little perk. But then when that happens, it's it's done. Because I think he does the rest of his uh, dealings with uh, with the other lead detective at that point. Yeah. So sadly enough, everybody that he's close to or starts to become close to, if you include the cop there, pretty much lets him down. Even the guy that's starting off the, the heist with him who runs away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who just, yeah. He, he does have, he, he does have Sal and I'm sure we're going to get to it, but I mean, you can make the case that that's a really expensive, maybe the most expensive relationship for him because, or, or for Sal because of the way that turns out. Yeah. I mean, even, even the, the, the next scene. So we're getting here into the, the final moments where we're finally going to get out of the bank. We're going to go to the airport where they got a jet. That's going to take us to, uh, uh, Albania. Algeria. Algeria. Uh, it's like a kind of like a little hospital, uh, yeah. like Hearst type of car. Yeah. And he's even making good with the with the driver, saying like, "Man, I can't believe I'm down here talking to Sonny, this guy that's robbing this." I was just talking with my wife about this, and yeah. he deduces through like that that like you trying to con me, man. Like, I know you're a cop, you know, he like figures it out really quick to the point where he wanted that guy to drive them to the airport. Yep. So the trust, it's like, he can't let his guard down enough to like give into someone because it's just going to come back to bite him in the ass. Right. So who does he have drive him to the thing? Uh, another young actor, probably first film I've ever seen him in Lance Hendrickson. Lance Hendrickson. Hendrickson. Yeah. Yeah. So I preface this at the beginning of the episode, like, you know, the, the claustrophobic aspects of, you know, how safe the bank feels for them as kind of like a, a guard between them, the media, the police presence and the people outside when they do decide to leave the bank, the way that they leave is this kind of like shielding of the hostages with Sal and Sonny in the middle. And they got to move as a unit, as a team, step by step to get into the into this car and then when they get in they get in really quick and slam all the doors that's all very methodical that's that's all really well thought out and even the way yep. that they seat themselves in the cars thought out i'm yep. sitting in the front with the driver in case he tries to pull a fast one on me sal you're in the back so you can you know take him out too if he takes me out like we have this part thought out but the bank robbery itself was a complete disaster mm-hmm but let's talk about this final moment here. Once we get to the tarmac here at the airport, it's, you know, I guess the first time I saw this, I was like, oh my God, are they going to, they going to actually going to get on this plane and get out of here and just like completely get away with this? Like what's going to happen here? And, yeah. you know, they have this plan and this had to have been what was Sonny was fearing the whole time was like, there's got to be some scheme in here to like take us out, do something to us. And, you know, they they unload one of the hostages, which was part of the deal, but then Henriksen pulls a gun, hit it in the like armrest, and you know they hold down Pacino and he they just shoot Sal right in the head, square in the head. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, detained, killed. No one's getting on that plane. You know, this was all for naught at this point. Like, what what do you kind of think of all that? How this all wraps up? 
Well, I think they really need to bring in an expert for the next television show, and maybe they can find the author of I Hostage or um, Hostage Eye or what's the, what's the guy from Die Hard? Um, oh, Hostage Terrorist know. Terrorist Hostage. <laughs> yeah, bringing that guy to help sort of decode how this all played out. Um, right now they are in hour 12 of the Helsinki <laughs> Syndrome. I think, I, think it's, I think you probably expect one of them is going to bite it. Uh, Matt, Matt, I just have to applaud you. That's one of the best like references. You, you, that was that was so good. That was I knew I exactly. Screwed it up though. I couldn't remember the damn name of the book. Damn I knew it. exactly uh, who you were talking about. It was that was yeah. hilarious. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, if Sonny's the one that takes it in the head, mm-hmm. I almost think that that might be an easier way out for him. I think that guy is in so much pain, yeah, and in such turmoil. But that almost flies in the nature of what the film is mm-hmm. because it, I mean, his life's a wreck and he's obviously on the edge and he's, he's losing his marbles if they're not already lost. You almost don't want Sal to die because you know, he didn't really do that many bad things. He didn't really do that many bad things, Yeah, but it's too easy if Sonny gets it. So it's hard to watch inevitable. One of them certainly had to go. And the question is, why did, again, and I, I don't know the real story, but mm-hmm. if it really got to the point with the tarmac in the plane in real life, God, I can't believe the cops would let it go that far. Do you? I know they and really- then even if it didn't end in the movie, that's also really puzzling too, because they had a lot of other opportunities to drop them before they did it in that way that they killed Sal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they in the in the real uh, story. Yeah, they 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 provided a transportation to JFK Airport, uh, and then uh, requested a plane to fly to a safe location. Like they they did all of that. It's crazy. That's wacky. But maybe and they, I guess maybe they just didn't want to risk a hostage getting killed. Which, to their credit, none of the hostages did get did get killed. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Part of me is also you know just the way that they portray Sonny, you know, I, I, I start, you know, especially once he gets on the phone with his wife and it's just like, Oh my God, like this is just mm-hmm. kind of a nightmare life for the guy who it, had been incarcerated, had spent time in prison, but also he's also talking about how he's going to get a military funeral. Cause this is a Vietnam vet. And yep. so he's all kind of probably messed up from all his experiences over there as well. So yeah, I, I feel, I, I feel really bad for the guy there's a part of me that was like, you know what? Maybe you should just let this guy get on his plane because then that's his win at least. Right. So, so when right. he gets stopped and he just got the guns pointed at him and it's just now incarceration to hopefully the now reformed prison system due to Attica, uh, it's probably yeah. hopefully a little bit better for, for Pacino. But there is kind of a bit of a melancholy. I do feel a little bit bad for his character, and that's an interesting observation when he's kind of the villain of the movie. You know what I mean? Like how are, why are we kind of sympathizing with someone robbing a bank and keep and keeping people hostage? That's yeah. strange, but to Lumet and the screenwriter's credit, I mean, and Pacino's performance, you know, they really got us behind this character to like really feel his plight. Yeah. Uh, a couple things. And then I have some, some questions for you here. Uh, Dustin Hoffman was a possibility for this role. Could you see that? Absolutely. Yeah. Like him and Pacino, I could see like kind of, excuse me, interchanged in a lot of the roles that both of those guys played. 
kind of funny you brought that up because I'm looking at the uh, Midnight Cowboy book that you gave me here. It's sitting in my office as I'm oh, working my way through. Nice. How is it? And it's, it's amazing. I'll have to let you read it. Um, but the Razzo Rizzo character isn't all that far from the Sunny character in this. They are, but they're also not. Like, oh, yeah. Ooh, see, that's, that's a good comparison. Yeah. I, yeah, I absolutely could see him playing that. Good. Uh, wheelchairs and roller skates were used for camera dollies to kind of have a more kinetic movement, you know, following Pacino around this bank, which again, the innovation of Lumet, like really thinking outside the box of how to like not have such a static looking traditional Hollywood film. Cause this is like, we're like a year away from the invention of the steady camera. We could be more mobile with the film camera, but He's like, yeah. no, put that thing on a wheelchair and we'll just wheel it around. Like, just like, the, I think the guy has like a subtle genius and I, I hope we're going to probably going to get to talk about that next week as well. Yeah, I think so too. Um, yeah. Well, let's see here. And then uh, the last thing, uh, this is uh, again, a successful film. It was a uh, $3 million budget, uh, $55 million gross. So for 75, yeah, that's, that's not bad. Right. Six Academy Award nominations for Pitcher, Director, Screenplay, Actor Pacino, Supporting Actor Sarandon, and Editing. And it won for, for Best Screenplay. So, again, yep. I think it was back when they didn't have Adapted and Original. I think it was all just meshed into one. So, Adapted from True Life Story, but then um, being able to give that thing life with dialogue and and uh, and pacing is, is pretty remarkable. But Kind of cool for Sarandon to get nominated. I think that was probably his only nomination in his career. I mean, for as little screen time as that guy has, I mean, he does leave kind of a uh, an impact on you. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's it's a great eleven minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It probably. It honestly, it probably is about eleven minutes. Actually, worthy. Yep. So, what was your favorite tasting note of Dog Day Afternoon? I think it is the discussion, even more so now. Like it was a discussion between. Leon and Sonny, and I'm even more impressed now knowing that that was all off the cuff. Mm-hmm. That's so impressive. Yeah. I absolutely believe that conversation. Exactly. Yeah. It feels like a conversation between real people, which is, yeah. you know, when you sit down to write dialogue, the first thing that trips you up is like, well, how do you write something that sounds believable? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Or hyper, hyper unbelievable, like in a Tarantino movie, or like, are people really driving on for 12 minutes about this band? You know what I mean? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Um, I think I'm going to pick the ending. Uh, I think there's just something about the way we lead up to it and how it's staged, where it's just so tragic, and yet it had to end that way. Um, yeah. But a reason why I like this era of filmmaking, it just if this was made in like the 2000s or even the 2010s or the 80s, like they're getting on the plane and they're going to Algeria, uh, and they're getting away and they're gonna, you know count their winnings here. No, you know, like it's always these morose bad guys lose at the end of the day or the heroes lose at the end of the day. And what, what was it really all for? Right. Uh, what was the moment of dog day afternoon? The beginning for me, when two minutes into the ice, the kid leaves, I just, it set me, on edge and you just know that there is very little good that's going to come from this. If it's already broken before the wheels fall off before you can get the car out of the driveway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what I'm going to say there. How about you? I think mine's going to be, uh, let's see. Mine's probably going to be that conversation with, uh, with Sal about uh, the smoking. 
I think so. It's so subtle, but it speaks volumes about what that guy's all about. I mean, well, and there's another layer there too, right? With the Cazali out and the and the cancer piece. Yeah, yeah. He tried to. I don't think he died of. I think it was bone cancer. But you're right. I mean, I don't want. He he says the words he says. I don't want the cancer. Yeah, like, exactly. That's almost just it's so kind of heartbreaking knowing exa- what happened to that guy merely like literally four years later. Right. Yeah. So, so tragic. I mean, that, that guy's talents in the short span are just completely remarkable. I agree. Who's the master distiller on dog day afternoon. Pacino. He's really good. You gotta let me double down on that one too. Yeah. This is yeah one of Pacino's best performances. Uh, yeah. I think I said, cause you know, we were talking about, when we did Carlito's way about some of his best. And I think I said his all time best was Godfather part two. Mm-hmm. And I think I still stand by that, but there's just such nuance here of if you want the crazy Pacino freakouts, you get those in this. If you want the subtle quiet things of him slowly figuring things out, he's got that here. Uh, he's got moments of anger. He's got moments of sadness, melancholy. I mean, it's so well layered. Yeah. You got, uh, yeah, I got to take that one too. Yep. How are you going to rate and grade Dog Day Afternoon? We have Rocket, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Oh, I think Single Barrel minus. Okay. Uh, the singular location is a big deal. And, you know, like we talked about with that rating for me, it has to have that very unique piece to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think, spoke about it a little bit earlier, for me, it's about 15 to 20 minutes too long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the tarmac bit is so drawn out. Like, let's just get to it. Watching, watching the convoy down the street. Like, let's go, let's go, let's get to it. Yeah. And there's a few moments, there's, there's 10 to 15 minutes. They could probably shave. Mm-hmm. It's not a deal breaker, but um, yeah, that's why I'm going to give it the top, top shelf minor or single barrel minor. Excellent. Excellent. I think I'm going to have to go there. I think I'm going to go top shelf for this one. I think this was a, a really good rewatch for me. I mean, I really liked it the first time I saw it, but here, you know, Pacino and his kind of, you know, full array of being able to improvise and go on a good screenplay and then just how tight it feels. I mean, it, it, it always feels like everything's pretty well thought out, you know, story wise with, with this story. Um, and I just like the way everything plays out. It just all just kind of keeps falling apart, falling apart. It just seems so morose. I mean, this isn't like the feel-good movie of the year. You're not watching Dog Day Afternoon at Christmas if you want to feel good about yourself. Right, <laughs> this exactly. Is, but this is that type of just, you know, downtrodden characters that are morally inept uh, that I really like about this era of, of filmmaking. Uh, uh, they just don't make 70s thrillers like this today. You know what I mean? Like, they don't make right. this type of movie. Uh, and uh, I this w- week I saw also... Uh, the taking of Pelham one two three with Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw. Yeah, I mean yeah. they don't make like that type of like tight, you know, a crazy like twisty turny thriller. Everything is so projected nowadays, uh, and I wish we could kind of get back to that kind of grit. Uh, there's just something about seventies New York on film that just looks amazing, whether yeah. it's Taxi yep. Driver or The French Connection. Something about the way they photo- photographed New York in the 70s just makes it look like not a great place, but a great place for great stories and characters to live on film. Yeah. 
I agree. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's a wrap on Dog Day Afternoon uh, from 1975. This was, if you haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, it's currently streaming on HBO Max. Go give it a go, give it a watch. Um, that's definitely one you want to probably check out and add to your film uh, uh, film checkoff list of that. I've seen Dog Day Afternoon. But coming up yeah, next we, week, this is going to be a uh, lot of fun. Yeah. From 2006, 2007? Yep. I believe we're going to cover another Sidney Lumet film. This was his last film before he before he passed. And Matt, we're going to probably tell the story of you, you there was oh, I was oh, maybe 7 or 8 years ago, you let me borrow a slew of films. Uh, and I remember them all very vividly cuz The Man from Elysium Fields was one of them. And oh, yeah. this one is like, it was just a bunch of movies you gave me to like, you need to watch these uh, if you've never seen them. Cause I think you'll really like them. And we're going to yeah. cover before the devil knows you're dead. Star- oh my goodness. Yeah. Starring Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke, Marissa Tomei, and someone I always really appreciate when he shows up in movies, Albert Finney. <laughs> Final role for Albert Finney too. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be so much fun. I mean, we talked about a lot on the podcast about the best films you've never seen or, the films no one's ever seen. I mean, we said that about Unbreakable, but you know, Unbreakable made a hundred million. I mean, people saw that movie, but still underappreciate how great it is. Yeah, I don't know anyone that's ever mentioned this in any wake of life ever. So this is going to be maybe a first for us. So we're really tackling something that is like not talked about, like ever. Strange that this movie kind of took the prisoners route, but even a quieter path than prisoners did for the quality that we're going to address. I cannot wait to do this movie. Yeah, it's going to be a, a hoot. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So cheers to you, Matt. I'm raising my glass uh, up to yours. Uh, happy New I'll Year. I'll drink to your leg. Yeah, I'll drink, I'll drink to your leg. <laughs> uh, but Happy New Year to all of you once again. Thank you for joining us for yet another year uh, getting started with this cast. we got a lot of really good casks uh, just kind of already kind of lined up that are going to be a lot of fun. Um, but hit us up on any of the social media platforms or at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. And until next week, uh, until next time, we'll see you next week. Happy New Year, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Dog Day Afternoon is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney to be present during your interrogation.